Well, hello and good morning, Rio Town. My name is Justin. I am a pastor here. Great to have you. A uh, few items. Happy Juneteenth weekend. Uh, great to celebrate liberation wherever we see it. Helps us glimpse a little bit of God's will coming to pass here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, secondarily, uh, again, happy Father's Day. Uh, tip of the hat to all the pops in the house. There's a lot of places we could be, especially if we have a legacy of being in church following Jesus. That's great. And I hope that you can feel honored today through the blessed sacrament of barbecue. So glad to have you in church. Uh, let's get to it, though. 1678, John Bunyan, that's, that's the Puritan, no relation to Paul Bunyan. That's folklore. Um, anyways, uh, John Bunyan wrote a, a classical text, a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. The story is basically an allegory of the Christian's uh, life experience, kind of being saved and tempted and going through life until we meet Jesus in glory. Anyway, in part two of the book, the protagonist, the character's name is Christian. That's not accidental. Christian comes across another man with a very weird name, and that man's name is Muckrake. Muckrake. There's, I think, a hyphen. And Muckrake has this predicament where he can look no way except for down. He only looks downward. So he's constantly occupied with raking up filth and dirt and muck and all this stuff just into big piles. And this is supposed to be symbolic of his pursuit of things that have no eternal lasting value. He just looks down. He is so engrossed that he doesn't even notice the scenery. He's in an area with beautiful mountains. He misses that completely. Never looks up, only looks down. Uh, we want to show you an artist's painting to help you visualize. And the big shame is that above Muckrake, he is offered a heavenly crown, this beautiful thing with eternal value. If he would only look up and seize it, it's his, but he is what the Bible calls stiff-necked, so he won't do it. He misses the riches. He misses the spiritual blessings that are offered, and he goes on with, with all the debris, with all the straw, all the dirt, completely absorbed in eternally worthless things. And of course, this serves as a cautionary metaphor for neglecting higher purposes, higher values. We're continuing this morning in our If Then series. Our series is called If Then uh, on the New Testament book of Colossians where Paul is writing from prison and Timothy is an accompaniment somehow in this writing uh, to a Greek church in this small little valley kind of off the beaten path Paul had not visited. And there's been a lot of warning thus far about being spiritually misled. Their uh, bloodstream culturally, so to speak, was saying you, you can have Jesus, but you need to add to Jesus. It's Jesus plus Right? And so he's pushing back on this. So they were, they were kind of hearing, and in, in different iterations, we get some of this today. You need Jesus, Jesus plus legalism. We've seen religious people like this, right? Jesus plus extra rules, rules that aren't really in the Bible. Extra practices and observances. That's what makes you mature. Or you need Jesus and asceticism, which is a $5 word for severe discipline that you could have no creaturely enjoyment going well beyond what is written in Scripture. Or what about Jesus plus extra spiritual experiences? You need to have visions. You need to have altered states of being, angel worship. Jesus plus. And Paul and Timothy 
through the Holy Spirit, uh, they're, they're saying that Jesus is so perfect. He is so significant. He is so enough. His enoughness is so great that anything you try to add to him is not only unneeded, it's actually corrupting and contaminating. The other things, those are just shadows. They are shadows of the one who is truly valuable. There's no substance there. Jesus is the substance. And so we left off last week with Noel helping us resist these extra items that supposed to be truly spiritual. You know, we get told things like don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. All these extra prohibitions that, by the way, are not in Scripture, these are just human regulations. This is for our pecking order. They get in the way of following Jesus, counting on Jesus. They don't flow from the gospel. And moreover, they don't really stop us from actual sin because actual sin is still a thing. And when we do these things, we rake up these little piles, we can become proud. And in the spiritual pride, when we're, when we're behaving and we're performing, that's very sneaky because we put confidence in us. And we usually rank ourselves above other people, or we feel despair if we're not high up on the, on, the, on the rank, not confidence in Jesus. So the end of chapter 2, which we wrapped last week, makes this, this pivot point where, where Paul says, reject all this falsehood, reject all this false teaching, and we're left thinking, okay, if I reject that, what then? How do I then mature? What is the focus of life supposed to be centered on? If, if that is all like playing shadow puppets, what's the real substance? What's the light? Colossians 3 verse 1 enters the chat. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hang on to that thought. Where does Jesus sit? Where does that have to do with anything anyways? Let's hang on to that. I'll come back to it in a minute. Paul is writing a Christian audience. They are baptized believers. They have an internal, excuse me, an eternal inheritance. And what he's trying to do is connect the dots from, from this doctrinal truth, this cosmic truth to their practical lives. How do they live in light of that? This is where we get the, the, the series title, If Then. If you've been wondering, like, why would you call this series If Then? Here's the idea. If you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, then orient your life accordingly. If this is true, live like it. If you're a Christian, seek Christ, not the shadows, not the muck. Seek the things above. Now, when we think, seek the things above, this is something we typically we suck at. I was thinking about this, this, this past week. Like, I'm going to preach on stuff. And I'm like, do I believe in this? Like, this past week, I was thinking, uh, <clears throat> still getting over a cold. That would make me all set if that was done. Uh, if my lawnmower was working, and if I had a haircut, like, that's, that's my existence. Like, that's what I want. So often, we think, oh, the things above are better. I'm like, you know what? I'd, I'd, I'd rather the mower works. I, I really would. Like, sitting around in the clouds with a harp in a toga, does that, seriously, does that appeal? I, that doesn't appeal. So what does this really mean, okay? This is a shorthand for saying, seek the things of heaven where Jesus is. Jesus has been centered. He is the main thing. And the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. So Paul is getting us to Jesus, not cartoonish imagery. What would help us here and give us value here and, and make this actually probably biblical here is understanding what's called our position 
in Christ. Sometimes we talk about our position in Christ. This is our standing before God. Like, are Christians on God's good side or are we on his bad side? That's our position in Christ. Now, our condition is something totally different. Our condition has to do with how we're feeling, how we're performing, what shape our, our circumstances are in, uh, our, our mental health. There's a lot of things that could go into that, and that goes up and down. It changes all the time. That's our, that's our condition, but our position is a whole different ball of wax. That has to do with a fixed state of how God has decided to categorize us. Based on his will, his decree, his covenant, his action, that is something totally different. Paul's saying if you're a Christian, you've been adopted in God's family. You've been declared legally innocent in his sight. And that's a fact. There's no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. If you've been declared innocent, you're not going to become guilty later on. And so sometimes we simply need to look up. Look up from where we're standing, from a condition, with our performance, with our pursuits, things that will never perfect. We'll never just feel all right all the time this side of heaven. We need to look up and to see what is eternally offered. So what Paul is saying here is that upon converting, we Christians don't just identify with Jesus, but he says we are in Christ. <clears throat> we are in Christ. There is a new category, a distinct category that we are now in. The things that apply to Jesus now apply to us. When he took our sin away, it's not just that we're like in the non-smoking section in the afterlife, okay? It's more than that. We have a righteous standing before Father God because Father God looks at the people of Jesus the way he looks at Jesus himself. Think about it. The Bible says things like we are baptized in Christ, baptized with Christ. We are put into the body of Christ. We are adopted into Christ. We are in Christ. And where Jesus is, that's where we are. And so, according to this passage and other passage, where is Jesus seated? He is seated at the right hand of God. We don't talk like that, right? The right hand of God. That doesn't come up. After all, God is spirit. The Father is spirit, right? So what is this idiom? For, what does this mean? I mean, we might, we might know of a, of a right-hand man, right? Oh, yeah, this person's indispensable, right? But, but that's the closest we get. So do this. Picture an ancient royal throne room fit for a, a king, okay? Call that picture to mind. Picture that. Imagine that. Uh, it's not going to be like a little shed, okay? In my mind, we've got high ceilings. It's very clean. It's ornate. There's decorations, uh, just fancy furniture. you got to have servants and dignitaries. There's, there's people there, but they're all down on the ground level of this elegant room, right? It's a big, and the way I see it, it's just a long room. It's a long room, and at the back of the room, there's this raised platform, and on that platform, there's a throne. And whoever sits on that is a big deal, right? The, 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 the pecking order is clear. Boss is up top, all of the subjects grovel below, and whoever gets to sit up there, they get power and glory and splendor and honor. It's amazing. But in this throne room, there's something else. Next to that throne, uh, just to the right of that throne, there's another throne. There's another chair. It's up there on the same platform, equal to the king. Now, whoever gets to sit in that chair, they're probably a big deal too. Right? And so what the text is saying is Jesus, like this prized royal prince, is up there right next to his father, 
the king. He is at his right hand. He's trusted. He has high status. Glory and honor and splendor are his. This whole God's right hand talk is actually a big deal in messianic prophecy. This is what David says in Psalm 110. He says, one of his lords, the first person of the Trinity, says to another one of his lords, the second person of the Trinity, listen to this. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, sit at my, where is he sitting? My right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So you got the the image of the double-seated throne room in mind. The father says to the son, sit at my right hand, and I'm going to make all the enemies, including sin, Satan, and death, amen, hallelujah, they're going to be under your feet. So where is Jesus? Right hand of the father, okay? Position of honor and authority, all this, it's a great place to be, right? And, And by the way, Jesus has ascended, and what he told his disciples, if I ascend, I go up to heaven, I then send the Holy Spirit down to you. So on the earth, you get the the spirit, you get the comforter, you get the advocate, you get the reminder. It's the seal, it's the deposit. And oh, by the way, while he is here with you, that's the third person, I am up there as your advocate. I am your cosmic defense attorney. First John is like, I'm writing you, so don't sin. But if you do, and we do. You have an advocate, Jesus. And so, so often we, like, we hear like, for Christ's sake, and we're like, oh, that's a swear. But when God looks at us, he looks at us and he's like, I will pardon you for Christ's sake. I love you for Christ's sake. That's not a swear. That's a beautiful thing. So we get a spirit on the earth. We get him interceding in heaven. Why am I bothering with all of this stuff? Details, details about where Jesus sits. Well, where he sits tells us about where we sit, for Christ's sake. Here's a passage in Ephesians where Paul is unpacking the power of the gospel, what he does with these wretched, lowly people, and he turns us into these objects of love. It's a compliment. Here we go. Ephesians 2. He, that's God, made us alive with Christ. Ooh, there's another with Christ. Like, we get the life of Christ. See this theme? It's like, I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up. Like, it's there. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him. That's Jesus. And what did he do? He positioned us. We have a new position. And he seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might display his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in who. Christ Jesus raised us up with Jesus, seated us with Jesus. Where is Jesus? Right hand of God. Where are the Christians? With Jesus, which deduction, just one more step in logic. We are seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. And so the Bible doesn't just say we get eternal life. It says we are like the dear children of royalty that can sit on the king's lap. We get a new seat. We get forgiveness immeasurable graces, riches. We need to be right with God. God takes our soul and he power washes it. So the gunk in our condition doesn't stay there. If this is true, do we need what the religious falsehoods, what the religious teachers are peddling? Do we need legalism? Do we need asceticism? Do we need excessive self-denial? No, that's just muck we pile up. So what do we do? In light of this reality, we look up. We set our minds on the things 
that are above. Paul says, since you're already a Christian, you're seated, you're complete with him, understand that and then let that transform you as you live consistent with that truth. Verses 2 and 3. Set your minds on things above. Have a mindset on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, so we like died to sin with Jesus, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, setting our mind is like a sustained mental effort, a fixed perspective. There's like a stubbornness that goes along with this, that we're not just agreeing with an idea, oh, that's neat, but what we're doing is we have a sturdy mindset. It's not uh, just, ooh, I like that, or yeah, I'll check a box. It is a settled understanding. This is the way things are. Not just that you want to go to heaven, but that here and now you think through the lens of heaven. James Dunn, very, very brilliant commentator. He says, what is commended is not an apocalyptic, and apocalypse just means revealing, or mystical preoccupation with the furniture of heaven, so not just the cartoonish window dressing, but a cast of mind. You think of what a cast does? You get injured, the cast holds it still. Or you, you, you cast something, it, it's something that you, you build a mold around, a cast of mind, a settled way of looking at things, a sustained devotion to a life cause. Paul is not saying that we become escapist, that we really ignore this life, that we ignore the joys and the responsibilities, and we just pine for some distant pie in the sky. And sometimes there is a fitting critique of religious people that they are of no earthly good. Sometimes I think it's a cop-out. You know, well, I don't need to be a good citizen. I don't need to be a good neighbor. Nothing matters. Society doesn't matter. My community doesn't matter. The planet's just a big ashtray. Right? We see that. That's not what we see here. How we live now with heaven in view really matters. Don't believe me? Continue reading in Colossians. Verse 5 on is going to talk about how our lives matter. Our virtues matter. Are we sexually pure? That matters. Are we gentle? Are we patient? Are we kind? Our virtues, our relationships, our relationship with Christ, our relationship in the family, with the church and society, it all matters. So the point is, living with heaven in mind now is supposed to transform us and elevate how we live. So I have been wrestling with these thoughts about myself and about y'all. To what effect does eternity impact how we live in the present? Are we so stuck in the pile of the muck? <laughs> like the fact that God has purchased redemption, that for Christ's sake, he loves us, he appreciates us, he cares about us, he understands us better. Like, do I have to live in my condition and live out my condition can I quit striving? Can I be done with the muck and look up? Because here's the thing. We always set our minds on something. Our mental real estate is always occupied, even when we don't realize we're doing it. We're just so preoccupied by the thing, we don't even notice our preoccupation. It's just the thing, whatever that thing is. We're always seeking meaning, identity, and purpose, all of us. And to a person, if we believe the Bible, the Bible says that by nature we seek idols, things that are not God, that we have hearts that are like idol factories, that we seek things other than God, and we give those things priority. 
the late and great Tim Keller describes idolatry like this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. And this is where this is sneaky, because so often we give the right answer. God's the most important. That's what we say. But our hearts betray that our lives, our desires, our mental real estate, because we have a cast of mind, we have our mind set on other things. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. Our hearts and our imaginations are sponges. We don't do a vacuum. It's always something. Anything more than God. Anything you seek to give you. Only what God can give. An idol is the thing that drives your life. See, the muckrake character is very driven. You can't get him off. Of course, no doubt he has a set mind, like a cast iron. But sadly, his mind is set on the things below, okay? And, and we do this naturally. We, we, we don't realize it. And we're like, if I can just have that, like Gollum, my precious, whatever my precious is, they don't always look the same. But if I can have that, ooh, build my life around it, then I will arrive. Instead of Jesus, we set our minds on other things, right? What about career? right? You don't really think, oh, career is a replacement for Jesus. But you're thinking, if I get a career and I'm good at it, I have notoriety, I have provision, I, I have success. There's glory. I'll get a plaque. I'll be special. Then I'll, I'll thrive and I'll flourish. That is life. Or we think physical beauty. If I can look some type of way, maybe that some type of way is like the magazine cover, the Insta, or the whatever. Ooh, that's true living. If people can recognize me, ooh, yeah. Or what about personal autonomy? If I can just express myself, if I am the captain of my fate, unshackled, then I'm alive. That's real life, me calling the shots. Or what about, and this one's going to be on the nose, what about being good and being spiritual? I'm not saying be unspiritual or being immoral. I didn't just say that, so I'll spare you the email. This is what the Colossians would have been tempted to do. This is what I think we are tempted to do because we kind of know maybe I shouldn't be vain and, yeah, I shouldn't do those other things. But so often we can build our life sneakily around religious success, right? And then I can discount my position in Christ. I favor my experience, my performance. But if I don't perform well or I have bad experiences, then I'm hitting the panic button because, oh, no. Ah, that's my condition, which can change. If we rely on any of that, and um, newsflash, we all are. <laughs> we all are to a person. Those are the shadows that we're supposed to be done with. That's not the substance. So think about this. Probably wasn't an exhaustive list. list. What are you relying on? What would make your soul feel well? What is the ultimate criteria for your life? If you say Jesus, that's true. <laughs> but if you say Jesus, you also betray your heart at the same time. Think about it. If we get that thing, maybe it's being attractive, successful, moral, maybe your thing is your family. Again, these idols are often very good things, but then when they become ultimate, then that makes us very fragile people. Because even the threat of losing that, of not having that, of you just have to be attractive, what if I told you that beauty would be marred in some way? Panic 
Rather than sadness, despair. We are crushed. Paranoia. Why? If we never get that thing, because we built our life on the thing. Because we're building our life and our house, so to speak, on sinking sand. But if Christ is your life, if he is the cake, and all that other stuff are just cherries that get to go on the cake, that's a different ball of wax. If Christ is your life, your position in Christ, who's going to give you perfect beauty and provision and all these things, life to the full someday, can that be lost? Does that wrinkle? Does Jesus prune up? Does he get stolen? Does he get fate? No, he's the strong man. He comes into anybody else's house. He ties them up. He's the strong man. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3 about how Jesus is better than anything, source of value, worth, security, and et cetera, and et cetera. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. He is making a comparison, okay? It's like I could say, all right, would you want this seven-course meal or this one breath mint? It, the, the comparison is like the breath mint is, that's n- n- this, that, that is like a waste. I don't want to waste my palate on all of this. More than that. Oh, he's got more for us. I also consider everything, and he, by the way, is talking about his religious scorecard, which would have given him a clean conscience. He would have felt good about himself. People in his community would have looked up to him. And oh boy, we still do that to this day. That, there's a holy guy. Ooh, that's, that's special. You're special. no. I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of him. And then he he talks about how his circumstance, how his condition suffered. Sometimes our condition suffers because we're obedient, because we work against the grain sometimes. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung. That's a great translation. Crap. Crap. It's muck, so that I might gain Christ, be found in him. See this? Like, it, it's almost like this was all inspired by the same sort. Anyways, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Question, are we raking up piles of muck and building our lives on that, or are we looking up and building our lives on Jesus, who's already given us what we need? Verses 3 and four. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in glory. When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he shows up, you will also appear with him in glory. See, unlike the piles of muck, we can see those, by the way, right? I, I, I can see my bank account. I can see whether or not my picture, my mug, got enough likes on Instagram. I can see that. I can quantify that, right? I can't see Jesus. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear. I think all of us, if we're honest, we're kind of waiting to arrive. You know what I'm saying? Like, to be actualized, to like, to be in full bloom, who I am, but this, he's saying the true source of life and what you will be is presently hidden. Someday it will appear. Jesus is the essence of the Christian life. Not morality, not stature, not your best life now, not fill in the blank, not the next pile of muck or the next pile of monk. And he says who you will be won't arrive until his second coming. 
the parousia, the second coming of Christ. If we believe in God, all things are possible. You grant God, resurrection is possible, eternity is possible, a second coming is possible. That's no sweat. He, he spoke the universe into existence. He's kept the church alive for 2,000 years despite itself. <laughs> He's coming back, he says. And then we'll be in full bloom. Romans 8. Paul says we get a future resurrection, that that's ahead of us, that we get new, glorious, and eternal bodies. I mean, think about this. For those of us who struggle with chronic health issues, mental health woes, PTSD. We do the counseling. We, 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 we take our meds. We, 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 we try to rewire all these things. We just can't get over the hump completely, right? The promise of a new day with the thorns in our flesh lifted and gone. Don't you ache for that? That that's gone? We get new bodies. Bodies embodied. Paul is saying that the spiritual life that our souls now experience, the taste, okay, the glimmer, is going to become full light when we get new eternal bodies. The apostle John adds to this. He says, dear friends, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, that's, that's the watershed moment. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Our life is not found in what's fleeting, even good things, family, provision, beauty, popularity. It's found in the maker of those things, Jesus he is our life, and it's his coming that actually will fulfill us, correct us, exceed our wildest hopes and dreams. And, and again, think back to like how we all kind of feel like we're bad Christians because we're not really excited about heaven. Call up that boring picture of, I've got a toga, you've got a toga, there's harps, and after a few minutes, we're just kind of like, Peter's taller than I, I thought he'd be. You know, like, what else are we doing? Like, that does not sound fulfilling. That's not the biblical heaven and earth. We can think of very meaningful things. Many of us are like, you know what? I'd, I'd rather go to Italy. I'd rather see my grandchild graduate. I want a retirement party. Oh, I want to get the garden going. Like, I wish my Achilles still worked and my jump shot came back. Like, oh, that would be so much better than the harps and the toga. When you read Revelation... It speaks of a new heaven, a new earth, resurrected bodies. And there's something that just stirs our soul when we hear that. We can get back to the exclusive cultural mandate. Our, our, our first parents in, in, in the garden, they are told to cultivate the earth. A lot of what we want to do on our bucket lists, we want to cultivate the earth. We were made in God's image. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to be ashamed of that. We're going to do stuff. We're going to beat our spears into plows, and we're going to garden. We'll probably clean up for a while because there's a lot of people that <laughs> have not lived with eternity in mind anyways. But imagine living full and harmonious lives, pursuing meaningful activities without the presence of sin, Satan, and death. Imagine your hobbies, your relationships, your abilities, your joys in that state of being. 
Jesus and his appearing will be the cause of all of that. So, so more than enjoying each other in our activities, guess what? We'll actually perfectly enjoy God himself. We'll want the right things. We'll get to see him. We'll be made like him. We'll dwell with him. But that's presently unseen. That's ahead of us. Jesus said, blessed are you who believe but have not seen. We get an extra blessing that the disciples didn't get. So let's apply this. How do we seek the things above? How do we do this? Well, number one, we, we convert. This is like what the preacher should say. <laughs> you got to convert. To be candid, the promises of heaven are for those going to heaven. If I have not set my heart in the right place, well, my ultimate destination will dictate that I don't get that place. What the gospel tells us is that we don't deserve heaven. We follow our hearts. Our hearts are corrupt. Uh, we, we, we follow false teaching. We spend our lives raking up piles of muck, various piles of muck. The Bible says we have the same condition as muckrake. We have stiff necks that won't look upward. We won't change course. It's actually a, a language that comes from a stubborn animal that won't do what it's supposed to do, plowing a field. Some of us, and this is kind of obvious, maybe we've uh, raked up the pile of like rebellious sin, like Vegas spring break. <sighs> like that's, that's where I'm going to find, okay. Others, we rake up a pile and we usually feel better than those people, right? Those are the younger brother in the prodigal story. Uh, these are the older brothers. The, the, then we get the, the pious spirituality. I'm good enough. Or we get into the false spirituality of, oh, I feel good enough. I have, I've sought this. I have done this. Look at my virtue. And maybe it's the muck of other kinds of idolatry, because this is all idolatry, by the way. Maybe it isn't either of those, but it's my career. It's my appearance. It's my family. It's my standing. It's my preaching ability. It's my fill-in-the-blank. But the gospel tells us, not only are we so bad, but that God is so good. That Jesus is better than we could ever imagine. That, that when he did good things, he always did good things. And unlike you and I, who we do good things. But he never had mixed motives. There was no pile of muck. that He always lived with eternity in mind perfectly when he was here and present on earth. And that he died in our place to power wash us, to get the muck off of us to offer us a clean slate, to offer us a heavenly crown by grace because it's only grace that would have us look upward. So, to seek the things above, convert. Convert. Number two, do the verbs. The English teachers in the room are like, oh, there are some verbs in there. Action steps. Seek. Set. You should do stuff. Set your minds on what's above. Uh, because we suck at this, we actually need to do the verbs. We don't naturally do the verbs. We need to do the verbs. There's commands in this here passage, okay? Um, we are saved by grace, okay? Again, there's no, no need for an email here. I'm not saying we need to do this to get saved or stay saved or anything like that. No, that's not what I'm saying. The only saving work was done by Jesus. He sustains us to the end. But this doesn't mean we don't need to work out the salvation, right? So we need to pay attention to what we're seeking, what have we set our minds on? This is what you worry about. That's how you figure it out. This is what you want. This is what you effortly go. Your heart, your sponge, you absorb. Ooh, I will have meaning and purpose and flourishing. Ooh, if I get to that. Okay? And all of us are that is not Jesus. So guess what we need to do? Lean into our position in Christ and then seek it. 
Seek the things above. Jesus, Matthew 6, but seek first. What gets the priority? What's number, billing, number one billing? Seek first the kingdom of God, not my kingdom, and his righteousness. And all these things, he's talking about the ancillary things we worry about in this context, money, will be provided for you. Then, I think, we'll begin, get the cake, then you'll be able to enjoy the cherry on top. So we have to take care to keep eternity in view and to let his agenda be our agenda because that takes faith, that he knows what's right, what is good and true, what leads to our flourishing like a good father. He knows better than his own misfit toys, his children like you and I. And by the way, I just, I just want to stress this again because I've heard a lot of bad teaching and bad thinking about heaven is, is God is not opposed to us flourishing and living lives uh, that, that, uh, that are full. He just wants us to know that the good things come from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And he wants us to love the giver more than the gift. And let the gift become a thing that points you upward. So if you love beauty and you have attention to beauty and you want to do your fashion or whatever, let that remind you of a creator. Don't settle for vanity when eternal glory is, is offered to you. That's just shallow cosmetic. You don't want to do that. We need money. We need to provide, right? Let that remind you of God's provision. That it doesn't come from a paycheck or a contract or, or an account balance, but it comes from God. He takes care of the sparrows. He'll take care of us. And let's keep our ambitions while we're at it, right? We should be ambitious people, but let's make them godly. Let's try to reform them because it'll give permanence and purpose to our work. Let's, let's do the verbs. Let's seek. Let's set our minds. Let's renew our minds, be in that process. Thirdly and finally, look up from the muck. Realize what we got the muck. We're muck makers. We're muck rakers. That's who we are. But guess what? We've got the spirit. We've got the word. We've got community. We've got brothers and sisters around the world who experience the same things that we are experiencing. The enoughness of Jesus is enough. And so we can lift our eyes off of our condition and by faith live in our position off the lesser pursuits to see the crown. The crown is worth it. That's being offered to be seated at God's right hand. So how in the world do we do what we're supposed to do? Convert. After that, do the verbs, seek, set your mind. And then when you fail, seek, set your mind. <laughs> fail, seek, and set your mind with everybody else. Keep looking up when you get discouraged. Keep looking up when you think you're doing a good job. Keep looking up. I want to conclude with uh, the message paraphrase of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Eugene Peterson so beautifully <clears throat> translates, paraphrases it like this. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ resides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with what is right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. The real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you. 
um, that you are a God of grace, that you are the Father who knows best. Uh, we are muckrakers by default. We desperately need you to be saved, to be sanctified. We need to see you for who you are. Otherwise, the piles are going to look fulfilling. We're going to be satisfied with, with too little when so much is offered. So I pray for each person in this room. I pray for myself. It is only by grace that I would ever seek, that I would ever set my mind on anything else that isn't deplorable in your sight. So in your grace, because for Christ's sake, you love us. You've given us your spirit. You are interceding for us. Help us to love you, to reflect you, and to encourage each other. We love you, Lord. Amen.